Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. I like I believe domestic terrorism, domestic violence, it's very similar. It's like he was trying to instill fear and terror in us when we like in our own home because I don't think he was comfortable or happy and misery I hate it's like such a simple stupid statement but like misery loves company and I think that's what he the more he got rejected by the outside world the more he exacted his revenge or his anger on us hi survivors I'm Tara Newell and I'm Collier Landry and this is the survivor squad podcast yay another episode another episode a post crime con episode tara oh yeah how was the live that we did what how was the live that we did the live podcast yeah the live podcast Uh, how was it i don't know know. what i'm talking about were you not there I'm, you're like, how was it? I'm like, I don't know. How was it? I, I was there. <laughs> I did it. I didn't watch it again. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't watch it like a hundred sh- times? We should be asking the audience how it was. Yeah. What did they think of it? That's what we want to know. No, we had a lot of fun in Orlando. We got to see all our friends. Jamie Rice from Murderish. We saw Tyler from Minds of Madness. We saw Madison McGee from ice cold case we saw so many people there yeah and madison had um, a very unique bag that she made (laughs) oh my gosh the bag so madison got all these bags ordered that said did you kill my dad and i walked past it and i have a dark sense of humor sometimes and i'm like oh we should customize that to me (laughs) and then we made a bag They made a bag for me after my suggestion saying that it was okay to joke about my trauma like that. And it said, I did kill my stepdad. You did kill your stepdad, which is very true. And speaking of that, we got to see Matt Murphy, who would have been your prosecutor from the the OC. He was in the DA's office for 17 years, right? And he's well known now. He's like on 2020 or 48 hours or Dateline or ABC or something. He's living his best life. Yeah, he's doing all the stuff. He's on um, 2020. He has an ABC contract. He was uh, also hosting the Clue Awards at the <laughs> at CrimeCon, the Clue Awards. And apparently there was a lot of kerfuffles. And we also met, finally met Joel, fr- uh, Joel Waldman from Surviving the Survivor. We met Brandon, where we you got to meet Brandon. I met him last year from Music City 911. There was a lot of people. We saw a lot of friends. Kimberlea was there. Obviously, with Kimberlea, True Crime. We'll just go drop all the names in this episode. I got to meet, finally, Kenny Kinsey, Dr. Kenny Kinsey from the Murdoch case, who was on my podcast. And he's so nice, isn't oh, he? Oh, yeah. Him and his wife. Oh, yeah. Him and his wife, Dee Dee, were so nice. They drove in with their Ford F-250. You got the make and model of their car? Oh, yeah, because the valet couldn't park it. They're like, we don't park 250s here. That Because it's such a big truck. Uh-huh. That would swallow my truck. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, all in all, our crime con experience was very good. Uh, we gave out a lot of stickers. You sold some of your mom's books. Uh, we sold some shirts, some merch. It was great. And we have one more show coming up here in October. We're going to Obsessed Fast, which there were a lot of people 
that were going to Obsess Fest at CrimeCon as well. So they're just making the festival circuit with us. Yes, yes, we are. We're going to see Justin from Generation Y. He's going to be at all three with us. Yes, he was there. And, you know, thanks to you, because food was of scarcity there in our little enclosed. We had a, we were like in a little uh, ecosystem at the Marriott there at the World Center Marriott. But you got reservations at all the places. And um, the food was, uh, yeah, it was okay. But, you know, it was ed- <laughs> it was edible. We survived. We did not get the coronavirus, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> well, today, as our listeners know, and so we have kind of a heavy episode. Like, what a surprise, right? We have Amy Chesler, whose mother was murdered by her brother. And yes. it is a wild story. Uh, her mother's day that she was killed was on September 25th, which is actually National Murder Victims Day, I believe. Yes, it was. And today... Also, in honor of the release of her episode, it is my mother Noreen's birthday. Yes. And you should be getting some flowers sometime today, just to know, let you know. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Of course. And, you know, it's important to remember our loved ones. And I can't speak for this because I haven't been in that situation, but I can only imagine what it's like to lose someone call your yeah moms are important moms are important but um we won't get into all of that with me but we will let amy tell us her story what do you think yes let's get into it let's do it So why don't we start to get into your story? Why don't you take it from wherever you want to start and tell your survivor story? Okay. Thank you so much for this space, by the way. I um, obviously, you know, we share similar missions as victims um, and I appreciate everything you do. I appreciate you carving out this time for me. I know we've been talking about it for a while, so (laughs) thank you for having me. Um, My name is Amy B. Chesler. I am a mom first and foremost. I am an author. Um, I guess I used to say blogger often, but uh, (laughs) that term seems to be a a little bit more in the past because now I am as well a podcaster as you guys are. Um, my show is what came next and everything that I do all the time with at home with my children on TV, evil lives here on my podcast, what came next, anything that I do is based in the mission, um, based out of my status as a victim or a co-victim of murder. Um, Collier, when I heard your story, it struck me deeply, the parallels and kind of the toxicity we grew up in to a certain degree um, or that we were kind of, that was forced on us, although we both had this shining light in our mothers. So my story is, um, I I like to say that I am a survivor of domestic violence. However, my mother, unfortunately, is not. Um, she, her, she was murdered on September 25th, 2007, which mind-blowingly became National Murder Victims Remembrance Day in America, that exact date, September 25th, 2007. Complete coincidence, but um, that's kind of just part of my um, 
mission in this space too. It drives me. That's like the flame in my in my system making like burning and telling me I have to keep speaking about my experiences. Um, another thing that people don't really realize and that I like to talk about a lot in my journey is I talk about sibling abuse and it's projected that about 50% of American children face sibling abuse at some point in their life and in some form. And I know you guys get to the mechanisms and the the description of abuse a lot in your show. Um, but that is something I like to talk about. Um, and yeah, I faced abuse at the hands of my brother for about 10 to 12 years before the cyclical and snowballing nature of, of his abuse became so violent that he murdered my mom. Um, when I lost her, I lost my world kind of, you know, I was 22 years old. She was my focus of my world to a certain degree. My, our little family, as toxic as it was, my goal was to be a fulcrum a balancing act sort of between my brother and my mom. Um, she was a single mom. I grew up in Calabasas. There weren't a lot of single parents there and there weren't a lot of kids like my brother there either. So he got kicked out of school really young. Um, they would arrest him a lot and then they'd kick him out of the prison or the jail, sorry, jail a lot. Um, and we were kind of in the in the 90s, we were kind of just left to our own volition, if you will because the systems didn't have the mechanisms that it has today to identify everything that we needed. Um, and so my, I think my mom was a casualty of obviously my brother's abuse, his horrific behavior, but the systems in place as well. And that would continue through the legal system. It took, even though my brother was caught that evening and imprisoned that evening or jailed that evening, it took over four years to convict him um, he executed a lot of litigation abuse and emotional abuse and physical, well, he attempted physical abuse. He, he tried to hire a hitman to kill me from in, within jail before he was convicted. It was just a hell. Um, so even though he was caught, the hell continued and the abuse continued, which actually just recontinued as you guys follow my journey. I know that, you know, that, um, yeah, he, yeah, at a parole hearing, he again threatened my life that was recorded um by the parole board and they it took me a couple several three years i believe to finally see some action on that and recently uh just within the last three months i saw some major justice um and even retroactive justice for my mother um so that's kind of just the nutshell of my journey it was a that was an abridged version but a long abridged version sorry um yeah so it's been quite the journey and I like to use my experiences in all my projects to bring awareness and um, to hopefully make change. You know what's interesting about your story to me is that your brother feels like what my father was possibly like as a young person, as a child. So there's just one central figure that's missing and that's your father. What is... Mm. What is that? Um, well, to be honest, and this kind of speaks to the relationship I had with my mom, but she always told me I was the last time they had sex. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just, we had a very open relationship. We talked about everything. That was one of the saving graces. You know, we talked about a lot of stuff um, and that got me through a lot. But um, she, my parents basically were were separated before I was born. 
um, and they were legally divorced when I was two, but I never lived with my dad. So I don't feel like I felt his absence like my my brother did. He left when my brother was three years old and I had a three-year-old. Now my, well, my, my son's older now, but um, I did have a three-year-old at a time and that was a very formative time. And I feel like if he had had that similar experience, it would have kind of set a little notch in his path or push him along a certain way. Um, and I think that was kind of the first event that really, you know, kind of isolated my brother and made him antisocial, being completely disregarded by his father. And we would try over the years, my brother and I attempted. And my brother was a, I mean, my, my dad was a major alcoholic. He was um, drunk. I mean, I did see him. If he showed up to events in my childhood, most of the time he was drunk. So my mom just kind of stopped inviting him because it was almost a liability and a danger. Um, I didn't know until I was 22 when my mom was murdered that he had 50% custody of, my, of us in our entire childhood. Um, he just didn't take it. So um, yeah, that, that was just kind of the, the beginning of my brother's undoing, I think, if you will. When did the abuse start with your brother, with you and your mother? That's a great question. I think the abuse, I can see it, you know, I can see his behavioral disorders and his conduct disorders beginning very young. But the abuse specifically probably began when he was in about fifth or sixth grade, which means that would have been, I was, a bit, I would have been in like third grade and that would be 1993. So if we're talking a murder in 2007, that's about 14 years of abuse of that. And the abuse, I like to speak to the system and the, the nature of abuse, right? Most of the time it's cyclical. It's a cycle, right? It goes over and over again. And then it's also snowballing. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. I know you both know that deeply. And my brother's abuse did that. So it began verbal. And then it began, I like to say, environmental, although it's not talked about. I think it's a physical abuse. He would punch holes in the walls. He would break things. He would, then it became physical abuse towards us specifically. He once, I was like in the kitchen making a sandwich, I remember specifically at 17. And the abuse had been longer than that. I'm just saying one instance. I remember just making a sandwich, standing there, and all of a sudden he just kicked me between my legs. And I doubled over in pain, like with immense strength. He was a strong guy. Um, and I doubled over in pain. And I remember like when I got up, I was like, why did you do that? And he said, I just wanted to know if it hurt a woman to be kicked there. That was just his. So it was, I like, I believe domestic terrorism, domestic violence. It's very similar. It's like he was trying to instill fear and terror in us when we like in our own home because I don't think he was comfortable or happy and misery. I hate it's like such a simple, stupid statement, but like misery loves company. And I think that's what he the more he got rejected by the outside world, the more he exacted his revenge or his anger on us. Um, he would have graduated high school in 1999, the year Columbine happened. I like to say like, I mean, I like to say I don't like to say it, but it is a, a fact. I think that he would have exacted something like that on his school if they hadn't kicked him out sooner. So again, that rage, all that rage from all these outlets that should have been kind of a resource for him, not to blame it on them. Um, it's just a mixture. I like to explain all these factors because they're like, it's like a recipe for disaster. 
I believe he is like quite the like an example of all the worst things in our society working together mixed with his antisocial personality disorder. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's quite a conversation. It's very layered. Yeah. Where did you guys grow up? Where did all, where did all this happen? I think that's also a really interesting key factor in our story. We grew up in Calabasas, California, like land of Car- the Kardashians. I explained that my mom was a single mom, which is really rare at that time. It was a different time in Calabasas, so it wasn't quite the Kardashians, but it was still a very nice place to grow up. But we moved a lot. Um, we were definitely, I hate to say this, but the of the poor bunch in that like, I hate to say that word, that we <laughs> we did not have the means nearly anywhere close to the means of my peers. I got a lot of hand-me-downs. Like, I had an older brother. I wore all his old clothes. I never had any of the cool clothes everybody else had. And I think that, like, I got picked on for sure about that, but my brother got picked on a lot because they weren't cool hand-me-downs either. <laughs> so it was just, you know, we were never had the means. And that was a layer, I believe, in my brother's anger. Um, he had this entitlement. He would befriend people even in his younger years and look for people that had means that he didn't and use them for those means at times. Like he even, when he would be too abusive, my mom kicked him out of the house, he would go live with his friend's parents in their like big fancy homes and he definitely targeted people, I think, um, to a certain degree uh, for a long time, not just us. There were girlfriends that he had. I recently had a woman reach out to me and say, hey, Amy, I know you've shared your story, but how would you feel if I shared my my story about, you know, your dating your brother? And I was like, if that would be healing for you, absolutely go for it. Um, and yeah, it's just he affected a lot of people, even with just my mom's murder, if he was not abusive towards them. My mom was a figure in the community, that's for sure. Honestly, I feel like Tara can can sort of add a little bit of a perspective because I don't know what it's like to grow up around wealth or or like any of that. But, you know, Tara living in Orange County and sort of seeing, you know. Yeah, it's very I similar. Mean, I, I wish I was the poor kid in Calabasas. No. You know what I mean? no, and you know what? And I often speak to this in the interviews is that there's a privilege, even that. And in my warped perspective, I remember like I told my mom, my mom, I, you know, the, I actually became a teacher at my high school eventually too. And the they joke the teacher's parking lot is like standard cars because they're teachers. And then this, the student's parking lot is like Beamers and Mercedes. And I remember a conversation I had with my mom. I said like, hey, mom, she's like, what do you like? I don't even think she asked me. I was like, I want a red Beamer for my first car. And she was like, excuse me. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like that's, that was just what everybody had, even in our own stature where I knew we had less. Like my mom was handicapped for three years and she was on disability, but they weren't paying her. And I was balancing her books because she, her arm was also handicapped, not just her back and her feet, like her whole, she was, it was just a terrible time for us. It, that developed in our, like that was a portion of our abuse as well. But, um, yeah, it was terrible, but, um, but I, and I knew we were kind of destitute, if you will, but we still had a beautiful home of our head. And now that I am a mother with two children and I, I am uh, putting a roof over their head, I'm thinking back to that home that she always put over our heads. And we were very blessed and very privileged to, to live in such a nice area too. And, and I never, ha- I think I, my brother tainted my perspective sometimes as well as the area. It's just not reality. Again, when my, I asked my mom for that red Beamer, she's like, okay, go get a calculator. 
go add up insurance. That's about $300 a month. That was a brand new driver. That Beamer is going to be about 600. What about your cell phone? That was like when cell phones were just coming out. So she was like that. Good luck. (laughs) So um, she kept me grounded, but Calabasas was not a grounding place at all for sure. So I was on the opposite side of that in a sense. I had was more so the rich person at my school where like my family had three cars and sometimes I would bring my mom's Escalade or my mom's Beamer or my car or, you know, so I, I had a lot of friends, you know, that Mm. lived in apartments and I had this huge house with like five bedrooms three we didn't use so it's did you have a lot of sleepovers i was always sleeping over my friends house <laughs> yes all my friends would always come over because we had a game room too yeah and then a full-on bar outside with a pool a jacuzzi um so i love it it was a party house and so you know i came from a different perspective it than that but i realized i was a spoiled brat at some points (laughs) well you know what you have self-awareness number one um number two though i do like to point out that even though my house like we were definitely of modest means very very modest means for calabasas we still had the home My, my mom was still an entertainer and my mom still and eventually she would she did pull herself out of debt and we bought she bought her first home ever and that was the home she was murdered in, unfortunately, which is very layered. And I felt like I had to just get rid of it because it was new. And um, yeah, it was just a very layered experience in that space. But we always had the home that my friends would come to, whether it was the cool house or not, especially at a time when I, I befriended people that were kind of going through something too. I always found friends that were kind of like, whether it was sibling abuse, um, whether I had words for that or not at that time. But I found friends who were going through similar things. And my mom was always the parent that would be the parent to them too. Yeah, again, that's just to say that like her murder, yeah, her murder really affected. I get messages from people all the time still saying like, I miss Hadass, I miss your mom. She was a mom to me too. Um, And on her headstone, I actually put, I love to think about this, but um, I wrote like her name, obviously, years. And then I said, beloved uh, friend, mentor, and ma- mother to all. Because she really was like everybody's teacher and everybody's mother. She would adopt you instantly, cook you a thousand meals, uh, teach you how to make chocolate, and <laughs> invite you back for the next one. So, um, yeah. I think people had said about my mother, they said, mother and number one friend to all Mm. and we didn't put that on the headstone but it's very similar because the impact of my mother's murder was very similar in where you know i had friends that came from broken not not necessarily broken homes but like you know divorced homes right and she would help like pick them up at school you know because single parents right so pick them up at school take everyone to eat do those types of things, make sure they got home safe, you know, helping out, helping out with the school board. And she was on the school board and uh, she was very active. And, and, and I can just remember uh, how impacted my 
my classmates were when they mm-hmm. found out that, that she was murdered because they had just tears in their eyes. And, you know, I feel like that's might not be normal <laughs> for a lot of kids. But I think when, when a parent is in that situation where they're so active in the community, it just sends these repercussions. So. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that speaks to, I like to bring light to the term co-victim because I don't think people, enough people know that word or that term co-victim of murder. And I think that that state, although we are the primary co-victims of murder, I think that like communities can be technically victimized by that experiences, losing people that are beloved to them, no matter their connection affects them. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really sad. Um, murder is definitely, however, you know, I just love these conversations because Tara, it's a very layered conversation. I'm clearly a proponent of self-defense and I love that as victims, we can come together in this space and have similar missions and drastically different experiences, right? Yeah. And we, we've become such good friends, um, just, I mean, like in this, in this space and I really do, and outside of this space too, I didn't mean to say only professionally, but, um, and you, you as well, you and I call your too, but I mean, it's just, it just speaks to the power of sharing your story, being open and, you know, being authentic, I think. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you too. And you having your platform, your mission, your podcast, it's, amazing um i i've just been such a fan of it and you know we're always coordinating and collabing and just you know lifting each other up and i think it's just like i i just love amy and i'm always authentic with you (laughs) i love it there's no way other way to be i think I was raised by a very authentic Israeli woman. Like, I don't know if you know any Israeli women, but Israeli women tend to be pretty damn authentic. I don't know the ones I know. Um, I think it's like this culture to be bred of just being honest and out with it. Right. And I I just always, yeah, I always just really appreciate people that can have that candor with me too. I think it's a cultural thing for me. I was raised or maybe, I don't know what it is, but that's how I always saw my mom, Um, you know, and like culture was really important to her, although she was really also proud to be an American as well. So that's why I think that our legal journey has been very interesting. And I think that a portion of my mission on what came next and just in general in life to educate victims that are going through the legal system as well. um, I think it's important to talk about the with that openness and candor as well, because she was so proud to to live out here as well and to be a Californian and to be an American. Um, but I do believe some shit has to change. And that is just based on, I think, our story as an example, too. I think that's another portion and that's really important about sharing our stories is just like things. All, Collier, to be honest, something that's always made me very, very I think I've shared this with you before, but maybe not. And I hope I don't. This isn't triggering. But when we share our stories, we learn a lot from each other as many parallels as I heard in your story after watching your film, I also was instilled with eternal gratitude because, and that was like, you know, I was just spouting about Calabasas and all the things we didn't have. But when my mom was murdered at 22, I was virtually adopted by her sister. And that's 22. I'm a fucking adult at that time. And when I watched your experience and seeing you throw into a very harsh system, 
Um, and thankfully yeah. being adopted, but still like this, that's a fucked up situation, no matter the way you cut it. Um, excuse my language, but uh, it's always, I've, on, I've honestly led with a, hearing your story, I, I hope that's not rude for me to say, but it made me grateful, even within my own trauma and my own experience. I could look at my aunt and have this beautiful, she's going through something that's very like immensely hard for us as a family, and that might affect us forever. But I've lived with like immense gratitude for these years, especially since I heard your story for her and for my family. And I think that's like another portion of listening to people's story, whether it's gratitude, whether it's perspective, whether it's just um, acceptance or humility or whatever it is, I think that we can learn and grow. And I just appreciate both of you guys sharing your stories on your on this platform and elsewhere in every way you have. Mover Nation, you guys all know how I lead a really busy life, right? And I know we could all use a little more relaxation. Now, whether you're trying to chill out or just need a good night's rest, Next Evo's CBD will be your best friend. But, and this is big, not all CBD products are created equal. Shockingly, a study found that many CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels promise. I've been trying out Next Evo Naturals and Movers. It's the real deal. And their commitment? Well, it's giving you exactly what's on the label. Remember, they've undergone four clinical trials, a feat unmatched by any other brand of CBD. Now, I personally adore their Stress CBD Complex Gummies. When I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, they are a total game changer. And those nights when sleep is all too elusive for me, the triple action CBD sleep does absolute wonders. Leave summer stress behind and upgrade your CBD. Go to nextevo.com forward slash MPT to get 25% off plus a free bottle of premium pure CBD, a $50 value limit one use per customer. That's N E X T E V O.com slash M P T. It's a, it's a reminder that it can always be worse, <laughs> but I mean, seriously, I think that I, and I remind myself of that too, because I'll hear something else that, that will affect me in a way that's like, Whoa, I couldn't have handled that. You know what I mean? So it's always, it's just a nice reminder yeah. that you know what you're and this is this, this a lot of people have trouble with this but a, a lot of it's a reminder to know that you're still lucky you're mm. really lucky to have gone through what you've gone through and then be okay yeah and something that you said on the vice doc actually or i don't i i did watch it i can't remember exactly if this statement made it in there was so much of that beautiful evening that did not make it in i loved that evening but something you said at the top of it basically you said like trauma cannot be quantified or qualified also like we everybody what might be traumatizing for me might not be for you and or something can be great you know there are levels and facets and layers of trauma and grief that you know we yeah it's just so layered so just talking about it helps us ex like understand it more and just emote and become healthier beings i think that the sharing part is also just I mean, I know that you believe this too, Tara, that like trauma should be shared and and relieved, whether it's in therapy or on social media, educating people anyway. Thank you. Well, I think it's so important to share it. And I want to get back to more of your story because I think this might be the only time to appropriately ask you what's going on. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> but I kind of want to know, like, what happened the day that your brother was arrested, if you don't mind? If you don't mind going back to that place, you could also tell me to F off. No, 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 no. Um, I think you probably uh, will agree with this, but over the years, I've shared it so many times and in so many different ways um, for healing purposes or media purposes that, like, I, you can ask me, um, I, you know, I, I approach it much differently now than I would have 16 years ago per se. So, um, you know, uh, that evening or that day was really a, a tense day. Um, you know, there was always kind of tension in the home, um, especially when my brother was living at home. Um, like I said before, like my mom would kick him out leading up to that day. He had assaulted her in April. So that's April before September. I don't know how many, five months before. Um, and he was imprisoned for like a month or two and then was let out. Then was um, in his car or at his friend's house and then moved back in. And, he, you know, the tension had been building again. Um, and that day I got, you know, four different phone calls from both of them um, where I first got a call from him. Where he was asking me when I would be coming home and I was working that evening um, I also had a date and I got a tattoo. It was a busy evening. <laughs> um, I I had work and I worked for, at that time, actually Arnold Schwarzenegger was my first boss and I worked for a program that he had started. Um, yeah, he wow. was in a great, I actually, he was like a great guy. I could talk a lot. He At the same time, my boss was also Corey Feldman. I've had a very interesting resume. Um, so at 17, <laughs> I worked for, yeah, yeah. At 17, I started working for both of them. I ran Corey Feldman's website and I worked for an after school program that Arnold Schwarzenegger started, but he was like ground floor with us. Um, and he motivated, motivationally spoke to us a lot. It was just a wonderful experience. Because he was your neighbor in Calabasas, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think he was in Malibu at the time, but that's not far. Um, but yeah, no, I was definitely the only little girl from Calabasas working for that program, but it was life-changing for me. I it, it gave me a perspective that I would never have gotten anywhere else. But that is to say that night I was working for that program and there was a movie premiere because Arnold was attached to the program. There was a lot of like cool stuff like that. I did not want to go to it. Um, so I sent my staff. I was the director at that time. So I sent my staff and I had to stay by the school with their backpacks because it was like locking. So that factor I had shared to a certain extent with my family. I'd said, look, I'll be working late. I'm, I'm going to be available to talk, but I won't. I can't come home. Um, and they knew that. And they were calling me sporadically throughout the evening. Um, and I went I, you know, I was at work. I left and got a tattoo, a peace sign, ironically, um, the night my mom was murdered. That was on the agenda. I didn't know. Obviously, I don't think she had been killed by that point, to be honest. Um, I don't know exact timing. but um, And then I went on a date. And then on the date, I got a couple more phone calls saying, you know, when are you going to be home? Um, and I could tell there was tension building, as I had mentioned. Um, both of my mom and my brother were a bit tense. The last time I talked to my mom, she said, I said, I told you I wouldn't be home till later. And she said, okay, bye. And that was that. Was that. Um, and then um, eventually um, I dropped off backpacks, was free, called my brother and said, hey, like, you know, you want to, he was asking me to hang out. I said, hey, do you want to like, do you need me still? And he basically said, don't go home. Um and I said, why? And he said, just, I don't want to tell you, you know, he just don't go home. That's what he said. So I hung up and called home. 
my mom did not pick up, which was weird because she was a single mother and never dated, never like had friends over, but like never went out, which is kind of a homebody. Um, and if I was calling at night, she would always pick up. So I called my brother back and I said, what's going on? Mom wouldn't pick up. And she, he said, don't go home. I killed mom. And at that time, I thought he was kidding. Um, I went home and found her. But on the way, I called 911. And just because I was reconciling, I was thinking, if it's a joke, I'm going to get in trouble for calling 911. But I will explain this all away with the history. They can look at his police record. I was like thinking that deeply. And uh, unfortunately, it was not a joke. Um, it He had killed her and I found her. It was very jarring. I know you were on, on Evil Lives Here, but it was very jarring because to hear his like interrogation tape, um, they asked him, you know, where was the weapon or where, what did you use? And he said a knife, it should still be in her neck. Mm -hmm. And it was, and that's what I saw. And he was just super callous about it like that. Um, yeah, and apparently he was making a sandwich got in a fight with her because she asked him to clean up. He had like sat down to eat and he had met, left the mess out. And she, he said, I talk about entitlement, but you know, he, he felt entitled to leave his shit out. And she was like, I want to make myself food, please, you know, clean it up. Or I don't know if they started fighting and he used the knife he made the sandwich with to kill her. Um, but it, it, it could have been anything, you know, he, he would have used anything. Um, he was just that abusive at that portion of his time of his life. And he's only gotten worse. Um, he was just charged with um, attempted murder of a correctional officer. This was April 7th. Oh God, I don't remember the date. April, um, April 28th, I believe he was charged with um, attacking a public officer, um, attempted murder, he was charged with um as in like a couple of months ago like 2023 of, yeah like it's 2023 um and by that time i had tried so hard to get the the charges for like he tried to hire a hitman from prison 4 years after he killed my mom that never got charges he then on the zoom recorded parole hearing recited my address and said he'd have me killed basically nothing happened from that so i happened to the week of his sentencing or his hearing for that attempted murder on the correctional officer, I happened to align with the DA that very week. And he said, Oh, I'm going to throw in that extra death threat charge. And he ended up getting six more years for that. That same DA went backwards and gave my mom, my brother has been gifted the, um, I'm telling you like every exceptional thing he, that could, or gone that could have gone wrong or whatever. He's been given youth offender status this whole time. He was 25 years old and nine months when he murdered my mom. 26 in Calabas in California is, you know, not youth offender status. It's adult status. So they went backwards in on April 28th. That's 2023. Um, they went backwards and gave him adult offender status. So they took away his youth offender status. Um, they, yeah, they gave me a lot of retroactive justice and I like to share that portion because it felt 16 years after my mom's murder, I felt like I was facing parole. I was about to see him get out of prison. And instead I saw 36 years to life being added to a sentence. He got his two other strikes. So now he has three strikes. He has two life sentences and he's virtually never getting out. And it took a DA that just finally listened to me after three years, after 10, 16 years, really. Um, yeah, that, 
And so I like to I like to share that so people remain diligent and remain fighting if they want to. Um, now I don't have to because of my my increased and continued efforts. Um, yeah, felt really fucking good. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's interesting. Uh, how do you call your like speaking of parole? Your dad is eligible. No. My father is up for parole again in 2025. So he'll I was be 82. Say, he just turned 80 okay. this year. His latest shenanigans that I got, that I was made aware of, but I knew it when it had happened, but there was so much going on at this time in 2019. But he was trying to get his conviction overturned because of sentencing guidelines that weren't followed, which is essentially a technicality like he was handed the sentence and then they change they add they put it in the books the next day after as an official statement it's it's just it's like a registry error or something that he's trying to go on it never and then he uses that platform because i just listened to an interview he uses that platform to then say that i was manipulated to testify against him by the police and by the prosecutors and wrongful conviction and all that stuff Never once does he say, I didn't kill my wife. It's a technical, it's just yeah. ridiculous. He's trying to be shrewd. He's like at, at any level, at any cost, really. Yeah, sounds like my brother um, at that hearing on, yeah, that was another parallel I saw my between my dad and my brother. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, you know, Tara can speak to this. I think Tara mm -hmm. would, would you not concur that if, if John had been in that situation, John Meehan, he would have gamed the system just as well. I, I, I'd be willing to bet. I think that. he would be out. I would be in chill. It would just be reversed. He would be like, oh, Tara did all this. Sure. He would have reversed it. He would have figured out a way to manipulate the system. Exactly. Yeah. And somehow those people that saw what happened would be like, did that happen? Yeah. He would have gaslit them. Yeah. He's just that good. You know, what's just funny. Like April 28th, that day, he actually, my brother pled no contest to any of the new charges. However, right after doing all those things, he said, like they read out all the charges. It was, it was six charges. I didn't mention this. He built a mace. I don't know if you know what that is, but it is a metal ball with spikes on a chain. He built a medieval weapon out of like metal in prison. He attacked the correctional officer. It was all on camera, but he ended up getting six extra charges, including the death threat against me and my children. But he... It was just mind blowing because as he's like pleading no contest, no contest, the, he, the judge says, do you understand all the charges? He goes, yeah. And he goes, but if my sister makes a victim impact statement, I'm going to take it all back. That's what he says. This concludes part one of our two part episode with Amy Chesler. Can't wait for part two. Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.